Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You all have a spare tire, I hope. Don't leave home without it. Make sure it's got air, right? You probably don't think too often of that spare tire. You might check it if you're going to take a long road trip, you know, say from Amarillo to Rockport. But um, you probably don't think about checking on that spare tire too much, do you? You think about it, though, when that tire goes flat. You think about, oh, does that spare have air in it? I've never thought to check that. Maybe I should. Maybe you're like me and you hope that that manufacturer put a full-size spare in the trunk or under the bed of the truck and not one of those little silly donuts. I mean, donuts are not made to drive on, they're made to eat. Can I get an amen? amen. I, thought that would, I thought that would help. <clears throat> we don't think about that spare until we're in that dilemma. Sometimes, in fact, all too often, we might even treat prayer that way. We might um, just think prayer is a, a thing we need to get out of a jam. Uh, you know, I am, I am a living, walking testimony that prayer before a big exam does not make one a 4.0 student. Um, in fact, it makes you, um, never mind. Well, as we pick back up in Nehemiah, the day that Nehemiah received this news from his brother and the men of Judah... It broke his heart. It broke his heart to hear the news that the remnant that was in Jerusalem was in great trouble and in disgrace. And it broke his heart so much that it drove him to his knees to pray and to fast. Not just for 24 hours, not even for a week, but for about four months, this man prayed and sought God for the restoration of God's people and the walls of Jerusalem. He also discovered in this moment that if God had called him to serve in this role, then God would have to make it possible for him to leave. He's the cupbearer to the king. It's a high, again, a high trusted position. It's not going to be easy for the king to let him go and replace Nehemiah. But Nehemiah's life was given to serve God. He was available. He was usable. And we can apply how Nehemiah walks through this process to our own life and to our church, especially when it comes to prayer. Nehemiah is a man of deep faith. He lived a life of prayer built on this deep convictional faith. Warren Wiersbe quoted another author by the name of Alan Redpath in this commentary, and I quote, there is too much working before men and too little waiting before God. So many times we want to jump in and fix it when what we need to do is hit our knees and pray. 
If you would stand to your feet as I read from the word of God, Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4 through verse 11. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandment. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, I will care and carefully observe my commands. Even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I cho- chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray together. Father, I imagine a day in your church where our hearts are broken before you with a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, where our hearts are touched and broken in people begin to weep and mourn over our prayer, where we are moved to a season of prayer and fasting, to reports of how the enemies of the gospel have attacked the church and your kingdom, how sin has invaded our hearts and our lives. And Father, how in that movement we would seek truth from your word, pray, turn away from our sin, and there we would find healing at the cross. Father, I pray today that we would not look upon prayer as a spare tire for our times of trouble, but that we would earnestly seek you as Nehemiah sought you in his time of trouble, that we would seek you day after day just as Jesus sought after you day after day, that we would give ourselves to prayer before we ever moved, that our faith would move us, and prayer would move us from being a spectator to a participator. Father, thank you for this prayer that Nehemiah has prayed and one that we have captured in your word that is true and is applicable to our life. Father, what we do not know, teach us What we do not have, provide for us. And what we are not, make us. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Nehemiah's prayer is a prime example of how we might need to adjust our own prayer life. And in doing so, that God would retool us and refashion us to be a repurposed people that we would rise up 
in prayer. We left off with Nehemiah receiving the bad news from his brothers. The walls of Jerusalem are down. The people there are in great trouble and in disgrace. They are without hope. And that breaks Nehemiah's heart. He's troubled in his spirit. And his attitude begins to shift. But it's not one that we might think where he just picks up and goes. But as I read this, I must confess I am a child of Bugs Bunny. And I thought, in Nehemiah's heart, this is where Bugs Bunny would say, of course you know this means war. He would say that to Yosemite Sam or any of those other fellows that were trying to come after him. But when he had had enough, that's what he would say. Of course you know this means war. But friends, we don't pick up our weapons of man. We hit our knees. We hit our knees. Before the nine o'clock service, I'm not sure if it played this before this service, but I know before the last service, and we often sing it on Sunday mornings, we sing something, it goes something like this, and when I fight, I will fight on my knees, for the battle belongs to the Lord. That's where the church fights her knees. It's not a handicap. When you read scripture, prayer is an advantage that God has given the church. Nehemiah's life, we looked last week and saw that he was available to be used by God. And we, as, as the church in Christ, are positioned in Christ for the same type of life, to serve, to be used by God for his glory and for his purposes. I mean, when we surrender to follow Jesus, it means that you are committing your life to follow him, to be available and to be used by the Son of God. And whatever position God places you in in this life, it's not just for people who stand behind the pulpit or people who are called to go and help build churches or to people who are called to go to the, the mission field across the world and share the gospel to a group that of people have never heard. It's not just for that. It's for all of us. It's for every single one of us in the church. And that when we commit, we commit to not do so in our power, but rather to depend on the power of God in us as the Spirit equips and empowers. That's what it is to follow Jesus, to walk by faith. And Nehemiah, before he takes any action before the king, he goes to the Lord in prayer. We might see him turning to the King of kings and Lord of lords here, going to him in prayer, offering up this request before God. Prayer is not just a spare tire for Nehemiah. It's his life. This book begins and ends with prayer. Too often, though, we in the church, when we hear bad news, we'll criticize, we'll complain, we'll put a hashtag on social media so everybody knows. We might even put all caps on our posts so that everybody knows just how aggravated we really are. You might be the one that wants to just jump in and fix it without thinking through, or you might be the one who waits too long to fix it. Either way, Psalm 46.10 says this. He says, stop fighting and know that I am God. You probably will recognize it as be still and know that I am God. Stop fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted upon the earth. This is the starting point, and this is why Nehemiah turns to God in prayer. As you've read through Nehemiah, you'll, you'll catch on. He's this man of deep faith, a deep convictional prayer life. And friend, that doesn't just happen overnight, but you must be convinced that God 
is all-powerful, all-knowing, always-present, all-sufficient, all-sustaining, and always-faithful. If you will claim those things and you believe those things about God, how does your prayer life reflect it? Your prayer life will reflect it if that is your conviction. Nehemiah displayed this kind of incredible faith and this deep trust in God. For what he's about to do in chapter 2, he could lose his life. And yet he trusts his God to help him through it and to make him successful. Nehemiah is a great leader. I've read and studied him for some leadership studies I did in my my D-Men work. He's a great leader because he asks great things of a great God, trusting that our great God to make it happen. Nehemiah's prayer. In this prayer, there's a pattern that emerges for us. Now, I want to caution you about praying in patterns. Okay, you want to avoid that if you think it's a magic formula to get what you want. Right? It's not an abracadabra, hocus pocus kind of thing. But there is meaning here for us in the pattern that he prays. And we see that. Jesus taught his disciples something very similar. I looked at, compared these two. There's something very similar to that. There is a very distinct pattern when we go to the Lord in prayer. So here is how we can rise up like Nehemiah and be a persistent prayer. Okay, take this down. If you look at verses five and six, the first thing Nehemiah does is he acknowledges God. If you want to be a consistent prayer, acknowledge God in your prayer life. That kind of sounds elementary and simple, but it's not. Who of us could define God with just our words? (laughs) Who of us would have enough hours in the day and enough days in the week and enough weeks in a month and a month and a year that our language could contain all there is to our God? But look at verses five and six. Nehemiah says, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant and those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. How does he understand God? Well, when we look at how he understands God, look how he's praying to God. Look at how he acknowledges God to the one great and awesome or awe-inspiring God. To the God of the heavens. One of the things I enjoy about living here is sunrises and sunsets. They're beautiful. The water, and and, and the fun thing about living, it's kind of like living on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You get it on both sides. It's not just one or the other, it's both. It's beautiful, and I love it when y'all post those pictures and you you give credit to to the creator of the universe. It's a great reminder, great reminder of who God is. And that's, I kind of see that in Nehemiah, the the God of the heavens. We look up and we see the stars, the one who's holding the stars, the one who put the stars in place, the one who set galaxies in place and, and put them in motion, the one who created our own galaxy that we live in and and put it into motion. God of the heavens to the one who is great and awe inspiring. This is the God who alone is worthy to be praised and worthy of our worship. Derek Kinder pointed out uh, in his commentary, and I just I quote for you, he said, there is more than rhetoric in this elaborate opening of Nehemiah's prayer. 
It deliberately postpones the cry for help, which could otherwise be faithless and self-pitying. It mounts immediately to heaven, as the Lord's Prayer does, where the perspective will be right and it reflects on the character of God. Think about that for a moment. How often in those spare tire moments do we just go rushing in, either complaining or begging for help without ever addressing God and acknowledging God? When we go to the Lord and we go to him in prayer, what Kinder is pointing out, that it helps us be in a right perspective before God. It doesn't mean that God is so big and I am so small. What happens is your, your eyes get adjusted to the God who is big enough in all things. Our perspective is right, that he is watching the sparrow. And if he loves the sparrow and he watches over the sparrow, he's certainly watching over us. Our perspective is right, which means we're going to be in line with his will and his purposes, and then it reflects on the character of God. Where does Nehemiah do that? Well, when he says that he is the God who is gracious, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Nehemiah is exactly right. Our God is a gracious God, and he is the covenant-keeping God. That means he keeps his promises. When we go to God first and acknowledge him, we are reminded of what is true and what is right. That's what I love about Nehemiah's prayer. It puts us in our proper place that he is the awe-inspiring, awesome, majestic God who deserves reverence and worship. When we think about awe-inspiring, we understand that when we come before God and we are reminded of his character. That character leaves an impression upon us as his creation when we encounter him. That's the awe-inspiring moment, that his character is that, that our God keeps his word and follows through on promises made. That puts us in our proper place and kind of reveals that we are not that kind of people. But we are reminded that our God in keeping his promises that he is deeply committed to his people. What does your prayer life say about you? How big is your God? It's a challenge, no doubt. Is he bigger than the problems and trials that you're walking through right now? Is he bigger than the boogeyman? Thank you, VeggieTales. Yes, he is. Is he greater than any challenge you might face? Absolutely. Most likely, he's called you to that challenge, as we were reminded a few moments ago, so that you would rely on him Our God is bigger than any plateaued or declining church. Our God is bigger than any storm that might come through and try to wipe out a community. Our God is bigger. He is bigger than the latest sin that has hit in the church to infiltrate our hearts and our minds and to pull us away from him. Yes, our God is big. You remember that old song as a child? My God is so big. There's nothing my God can. Okay, now the nine service, the nine o'clock service didn't do so hot on that one either. Some of you passed, not so much on you others. How about this one? He's got the whole world. Oh, that's exactly what happened in the nine o'clock. All right, you redeemed. All right, you got it. That's exactly who he is. But see, when we acknowledge him as such, we are reminded exactly whose we are and who's got us, right? 
To him who is able, Paul wrote, to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. That's who our God is. He knows every star by name. That's fascinating to me. And so Nehemiah begins this prayer as a result of the difficult news from Jerusalem, and he turns to the God who can solve that problem, and God uses Nehemiah to solve the problem because Nehemiah is usable and available. Friend, I am so encouraged by Nehemiah. I'm encouraged because he reminds me that there's always hope. Even in the darkest of moments, there's always hope. That if our God is for us, the church, who can be against us? There's always hope. And one reason we know that there's always hope is because our God is the covenant keeper. He is the promise keeper. He has given us his word. He has given us his truth. And in both of those, we have Jesus that Hebrews describes as an anchor for the soul. Hope that is an anchor for the soul. A covenant that is gracious, which means we didn't deserve it, neither did the day, the people in Nehemiah's day. We don't deserve that covenant. We don't deserve that promise keeping. And yet our God is gracious and merciful. To a thousand generations, he is faithful. And he will do what he has said and promised to do. And so Nehemiah appealed to God. He appealed to God on that steadfast love and promise keeping. A man or a woman of God who is a persistent prayer lives and prays this truth, okay? Second, a persistent prayer will confess and repent of all sin. Notice what Nehemiah does in verse six, the second half of verse six. I confess the sins we have committed against you, both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands and statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. He turns to the root of the problem. He's gonna dance with the one who brung him. That was sin. It wasn't just his sin, but it was all of the people's sin. We remember the walls are down, but the walls are down is the physical symptom. The spiritual problem is behind that. The physical there is a result of the spiritual. The problem is sin. The people had turned away from God. They had turned away to, to worship and serve other gods, idols. And it's not just the only thing. There's lots of issues with Israel and Judah at this point. But the problem is always sin. And it will always be sin until Christ comes back. Sin has been that problem from the very beginning that the world tries to minimize sin. Even some who stand in pulpits today will minimize sin so as to not run anyone off. We can't minimize sin. It's always going to be the problem. How can we know about repentance if we don't know about sin? The spiritual condition of God's people is deplorable. They got themselves in this situation. And yet here's Nehemiah praying on their behalf. We have sinned against you. He includes himself in that. No one is immune from the effects and consequences of sin. One of the worst results or conditions of sin is that you think that your sin doesn't, doesn't change you or has no effect on you. It doesn't hurt anyone and it doesn't hurt you, which ultimately or eventually will lead you to think, I have no sin. My life's pretty good got all the things I want. And that's exactly the one thing Satan convinced Eve into thinking. God didn't mean what he said. 
But God's word shows that God did and still does mean what he said. Friends, we have no excuses. God's people are reaping the consequences here in Nehemiah, and we will too as a result of our sin. We need to see here that sin is always personal and corporate. What's happening in an individual's life can have an effect in the church as well. As the body of Christ, we are linked together. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus would teach a little leaven infiltrates the entire loaf. That's something we need to consider about our sin. As one suffers, we all suffer. So what's the remedy? Well, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a good place to start. Humility before God, praying and seeking his face. Turning away, that's repentance, turning away from evil. Then it says, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. The promise in the New Testament we find in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a pretty good promise. Praise God that he is the God who keeps that promise. A persistent prayer is going to confess and repent of all sin. God's commands and his promises are not whimsical. Friend, he knows exactly what is best for your life, for his people, for the church, for the nations. That's the gospel. And where he wants us are to be a people who have a broken spirit and a contrite heart before him, who are humbled to know that we cannot do this on our own. We need a God who is going to fight for us. We need a God who would die for us and come back to life for us so that we wouldn't be stuck and dead in our sins, but we could be made alive in Christ and walk in this world with the confidence of the God, the God on our side, the church, who is going before us to fight that battle as we fall to our knees. Nehemiah is living out the fulfillment of what God promised. If you'll see, he says in verse 8, Remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles are, were banished to the furthest, farthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them home. He's living that out. He's praying for that. He's praying for that restoration to come. And the confessing of sin, the hoping to experience that God would remember that covenant of restoration. It's coming, Nehemiah. It's coming. And this is the good news that that promise keeping God is a God of mercy and grace. That he is a God who shifts through the rubble of broken lives and our addictive behaviors and our hidden sins. And that he is in the business of bringing life to those who are dead in sin through Jesus Christ. Friend, our God knows what he is doing. Turn to him. Turn to him. He knows what you've been doing or not doing. Turn to him. And he loves you anyway. The good news is that he is the God who restores because he is the God of hope. Third, we need to remember the promises of God. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10 again. We remember those promises. God promised to gather them from exile and bring them home. That he redeemed them with great power and God's 
strong hand. Nehemiah is recalling Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God made this covenant with Moses. He promised them, if you turn away and do these things, you're going into exile. That's exactly where they are. But then he came back and he said, now, when you come to your senses, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, look it up. When you come to your senses, I'll bring you home. Verse 4, he said, even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. Friend, when we pray scripture, which is where the promises of God are, when we pray scripture, we're not going to go wrong. God's word will not lead you astray, will not lead you wrong. Praying the scripture is a powerful thing, and that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. He's praying the covenant promises of God. Have you ever done that, or do you pray the scripture? Now, you need to be careful and make sure that as you're, you're not just cherry-picking a scripture that you think is going to please God, so he's going to bless you for it. You've got to be praying in the context, that verse, the context of Scripture that you're reading from. But pray the Scriptures. If you're struggling with a sin, turn to Psalm 51. You'll find there, you'll find there hope for the soul that is caught in sin. Praying Scripture is heart-opening. It's eye-opening. Something we need desperately in our times of prayer. Corporately, there are seasons when the church, after years of disobedience and sin, pride, Rebellion, there are times the church needs to pray something very similar to what Nehemiah is doing. You can see the story of so many churches that have come back to life by God's grace and his mercy because they confessed their sin and repented. See the story of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. That's the one that I, I'm most familiar with just from reading the works of Jim Simula. The final thing that Nehemiah does that we need to employ in our prayer life is to appeal to God for success. Would you pray to God for success? After much prayer and fasting, something like four months, it comes time for action. But in verse 11, Nehemiah knows he's gonna have to go to his king and ask permission to leave. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. This man he's going before could have taken his life. It's the king's authority to do so. But Nehemiah is praying for success and praying that this guy would have compassion upon him. And according to Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, this is Artaxerxes. He had already issued a decree once before for work to stop in Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah is going to go back to him and ask for it to start again. Nehemiah faces a great challenge here, and he says, I'm the cupbearer to the king. That's that great position that God had put him in. He's trusted by the king, but he still prays for his success, prays that God would give him success. Friends, our success as Coastal Oaks Church and the church as a whole rests solely in the hands of a sovereign God. Your success in following Jesus rests solely in the hands of a sovereign God. You must pray for success. As we say, here I am, send me, Lord. We also pray, Lord, grant your servant success today. Because success equals obedience and faithfulness to do what God has called you to do. That's what success looks like. 
And it doesn't mean glory for your name. It means glory for his name. It is for your good, but it is for his glory most of all.